Hey, Rarecast listeners, Global Genes Next 2021, A Time for Resilience and Ingenuity, is now available to download. This is our annual report on the major developments in rare disease and looks ahead to trends that are reshaping the landscape. To get your free electronic copy, go to globalgenes.org and look for a link to the report on the homepage. You can also go to bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. That's bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. The electronic version is free. On-demand print copies can also be ordered for a fee. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Gene therapy is promising to provide treatments and potential cures for a long list of rare genetic diseases. A key element of these therapies are the viral vectors that are used to deliver and insert the genetic material used to treat a patient. Guangpao Gao, co-director of the Li Weibo Institute for Rare Disease Research, director of the Hore Gene Therapy Center and Viral Vector Corps, and professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and Philip Tai, assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, discuss a recent review article that they co-authored in Nature's journal Signal Transduction and Targeted Therapy that looks at viral vector platforms for gene therapy. We spoke to the two researchers about viral vectors, the role they play in gene therapy, and the decision process that goes into the selection of a vector for a specific gene therapy. Phil, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about your recent review article in Nature that looks at viral vector platforms for gene therapy, the current state of vectors, and their relative strengths and weaknesses. Perhaps we can start with some definitions and basics for listeners. You talk about four basic gene therapy approaches. What are they? Yeah, so they're they're kind of loosely termed, but um, the four basic uh, gene therapy approaches. One is, of course, gene addition, where if you have a mutation uh, in a critical gene that that yields a disease, gene therapy aims to then give back uh, function to it by introducing uh, an exogenous gene. Um, Then there's gene replacement. Uh, therapy, which is if you have a mutation and that gene is critical, but you can't supplement it with another gene, uh, the therapy acts to replace that mutated gene. Uh, The third one is uh, uh, a gene knockdown approach. So if there is a mutation in the gene that causes toxicity, uh, so for uh, for example, Huntington's disease, which is characterized by a repeat sequence that uh, causes a normal Huntington protein to then uh, become toxic to the cells, Um, the strategy is to knock down that gene's expression, right, Uh, to cure the the disease. And then finally, we have um, gene editing. And so gene editing is something that I think 
holds a lot of promise for these type of treatments because um, the way that the, the most recent platforms for gene editing, um, and I'm speaking about uh, CRISPR, uh, CAS platforms, um, they can essentially be engineered in such a way that they can target any position within the human genome to correct any mutations. And so, um, you know, there's certainly a lot of um, hope in, in terms of treating these uh, rare diseases that, that may impact um, um, people's um, health. What is a vector and in, in the context of gene therapy, what's its role? So, so oh, uh, may I, uh, uh, please, uh, Danny and uh, Phil, may I add a, additional clarifications please. on gene replacement and uh, gene addition? So gene replacements, it's really add a functional gene back when your cells as a mutated gene, not functional. So you want to use a functional to replace gene function of a mutated genes. And gene addition, on, in otherwise, it's gonna be, uh, doesn't matter if your cells uh, have any mutation or not. And you just, by adding a genes, either endogenous or exogenous, such as antibody, such as anti-cancer anti drugs, then you, by adding this gene to fight the diseases. It may not be genetic disease and maybe. So, so I just want to make that clarification. Thank you. Anyone who's heard about gene, gene therapies have heard the term vector. In, in the context of gene therapy, what are vectors and what function do they provide? Yeah, so I think uh, um, gene, um, you know, gene therapy vectors is at the heart of what we uh, do here in the Hori Gene Therapy Center at UMass Medical School. So vectors, you can think of them as essentially the vehicles that deliver a genetic payload into cells, right? And the uh, gene therapy vectors that we uh, are really in intensely working on are based on uh, the adeno-associated virus, um, um, vi uh, a class of viruses, right? And these are very small uh, non-pathogenic viruses that do not uh, replicate on their own. Um, and based on this sort of safety profile, essentially what you can do is you can gut the, um, the viral um, genome of any endogenous or, or genes that are native to the virus so that they uh, don't replicate on its own. And then you can replace it with a genetic payload. Um, oftentimes it's a, it's a therapeutic uh, um, transgene. Um, and then you can use this as a means of delivering um, a, a therapeutic gene product. What makes for a good vector? <laughs> that, that's a very interesting question. So obviously a, a good gene uh, therapy vector is one that can you know, target uh, afflicted cell type that defines the disease uh, and does so efficiently. Um, and so, there are many types of, you know, uh, human diseases. And so uh, each one of these diseases may require um, unique treatments. And so when we really think about gene therapy, um, we like to tailor the, the vector to the disease, right? So there's certain diseases that may afflict uh, highly replicative cell types or cell types that are non-replicative. And so, you know, you can, you can choose viruses that, um, uh, and then vectorize them 
to target you know, these individual cell types. And then there's also differences in, in tropism profiles that certain classes of vectors are very good at targeting. And so um, you can tailor the gene therapy treatment uh, just based on um, um, you know, optimal uh, vector profiles. May I add uh, a few points here? So first of all, the, uh, you asked the question, what is the vector? So vector, it's a vehicle to deliver gene drug. And you can use either a non-viral vehicle that usually we call formulation and to deliver drug just like a delivery small molecule drugs. You could also use a biological vehicle. That is what we call the viral vector. So, so that's the definition. They basically deliver your gene drug into human and uh, uh, efficiently and safely. The second, it's related to your, your another question. What do we think are good vectors? Personally, I believe those are four factors I would consider as a good uh, gene therapy vectors. Number one, it's efficient. Be efficient to deliver genes into human body to different cells. Um, and that is the very important and most critical step. Secondly, it's stable. So once you have the delivery, in many cases, you want the gene be there forever and one shot works forever, that's what you want. And so that's the second feature. The third feature is we most likely want the gene be stable in cells, but not integrated because that could potentially generate some integration uh, uh, we call genotoxicities. And so that's, uh, that's the third. Of course, another important feature of a good vector would be very low, uh, uh, what we call immunogenicity and uh, immunotoxicity. So, so those are the, uh, the features uh, we as a gene therapy uh, researchers, we prefer for a good viral vector. Thank you. You had talked about the kind of disease specific selection process. One thing I don't think you talked about was the size of the payload itself. How limiting can a vector be in terms of the size of the genetic material you're you're using it to carry? Yeah, so so I will start this and Phil can add, this is a very challenging question uh, or issues we're facing as a gene therapy researchers. And basically uh, what happened is that different viruses have a different uh, uh, payload or, uh, or transgene capacity. And adovirus probably can handle up to 6 KB uh, which is a 6,000 6, base pair uh, expression or, or transgene cassette. And lentivirus probably can handle up to 9 kb, but it depends on how you design it. Where probably 7, 8 kb, it's most likely going to be optimal. But adeno-associate while it's very attractive in other uh, you know, features, such as genotoxicity, such as no immunogenicity and no genotoxicity, and but it it only can handle up to uh, 4.5 kb uh, transgene cassette, so that's certainly a limitation for many genetic diseases. Is there an example? I mean, I don't think most people know what a what 4 kb or 6 kb are like. Uh, if you think in terms of gene therapies that are either in development or diseases that are targets, is there an example of a gene that's? Sure. 
I can give you two examples. One example is Duchenne muscular dystrophy. I mean, this is an area of the expert actually of a field time, but I want to tell you that gene itself is huge. It, it cannot, that is gene, it's uh, uh, probably about eight or nine KB or so, CDN itself cannot fit. So now scientists trying to uh, revise it or modify the engineer into either micro dystrophin gene or mini dystrophin gene so we can hit, we can keep that uh, in the AAV capacity. And second example is a cystic fibrosis. That gene itself is close to 5 KB and basically, or 4.5 KB. So basically leave very limited space for regulatory elements such as promoters and other signals required for expression. And so those are the limit, limitation uh, for uh, our gene therapy for those diseases. Phil, please, if you could you know, add more on this one. Yeah, I think, you know, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is actually one of the best examples for, you know, folks trying to package oversized genes for, for gene therapy, right? So as Guangping said, that the, that the, um, um, the dystrophin gene is, is fairly large, right? I think it's four point, sorry, 14 KB, the, the cDNA. Uh, but actually what is interesting about those strategies is that very early on, um, you know, muscle biologists had identified a specific mutation called uh, Becker's uh, muscular dystrophy, where you get a truncation in the spectrum-like repeats of the gene. Now, this gene is still functional, right? So um, it still allows for muscles to, to, to function, for uh, muscles of the diaphragm to help the, the patient breathe. Um, but those individuals were, were slightly compromised in terms of quality of life, but it still allowed for these patients to live a pretty long life. And so because of this discovery of this type of truncated uh, dystrophin gene, um, uh, scientists were able to really take advantage of this uh, aspect, right? Because this can actually package into the small uh, AEV packaging size. And so a lot of the uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy gene therapy strategies employ these type of strategies to generate these micro genes that you can um, package into AAV. And they work fairly well, at least uh, in, in mouse models. And a lot of um, these platforms are now being tested in clinical trials with some success. You touched on immunogenicity. Our immune systems are designed to fight pathogens, what are the consequences of using viral vectors in gene therapies? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an excellent question. So we really believe um, that the host immune response is one of the major barriers and challenges for gene therapy. As you said, you know, um, uh, our immune system is developed to, to take on uh, viruses. And some of the um, uh, gene therapy capsids that are in clinical trials, they were either uh, isolated from human tissues or related um, non-human primate tissues. And so the chances that um, any one of us may carry some um, um, response to these capsids is fairly high, right? So if you look at any uh, population, um, we may be 50 to 80% seropositive for AAV. And so there are several serotypes that are currently in use. 
And so, you know, we really envision a future where um, some part of this gene therapy may involve personalized medicine, right? So if we find out that a certain gene therapy platform is incompatible because of an immune uh, uh, response risk, uh, then we can tailor the, the gene therapy based on different serotype uh, usages for the vector uh, vectors that are used, right? And so um, it's a major problem. There are many, many strategies to try to overcome both the adaptive and innate immune response. This is some research that we've been really focused hard on and others in the field as well. How, how much ability do we have to re-engineer a virus to make it a a more desirable vector? Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's a very, very good question. You know, I think the gene therapy field, um, even um, I think, yeah, it was discovered, AAV was discovered, for example, in the, in the, in the 1960s, but even now we're learning new things about these, uh, these viruses. And the, the prevailing thought really is that in order to build a better vector, we have to really understand the viruses themselves. And not only that, we have to understand the host and virus um, you know, interaction, right? Because again, the host you know, uh, immune system is one of the major barriers. So the more that we learn about these things through you know, basic science pursuits, um, the more that we can better engineer these viruses um, as vectors, right? Manufacturing of viral vectors is, is complex, it's expensive. How should the question of manufacturing weigh in vector selection? That uh, is a critical, very critical uh, question, thank you. And so the manufacturing and correlation between manufacturing and uh, the disease target is critical. First of all, it depends how you're going to uh, 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 give the viral gene therapy to human patients. If you do systemically, you use IV injection to deliver genes to your target tissue, such as liver, muscle, and the CNS, as some vector can cross blood-brain barrier and transduce the CNS. That is usually require high dose of vectors in order to generate this effect of a transvascular gene delivery. And however, for some local injections, such as ocular gene therapy, when you deliver genes to eyes or you deliver to ears for some hearing defect, then you do not need high dose of viral vectors and the volume and the dose are limited. So in that case, the manufacturing burden will dramatically reduce. And if you do systemic delivery, manufacturing burden is a major hurdle uh, for gene therapy get commercialized. You looked at three major viral vector platforms, adenoviruses, adeno-associated viruses, and lentiviruses. I thought you could walk us through each of those and talk about those from their advantages and disadvantages. What are adenoviruses and how do they rate as gene therapy vectors? So I, I would quickly walk through the advantages and disadvantages of those three vectors and Phil can uh, supplement. So about adenovirus, that's probably one of the most efficient viral vector for gene delivery. It can transduce, transduce virtually any cell types, dividing cell, non-dividing cell, 
brain cell, liver cell, muscle, it, it can do a lot of things. That's a major advantage. And the and disadvantage there is this virus is probably most immunogenic uh, vector at both uh, uh, innate and adaptive immune response uh, uh, levels. So for this reason, and this is a probably most immunotoxic uh, vector and can cause uh, untowards effect for human gene delivery. The second vector is lentivirus. And this virus uh, relatively, the uh, advantage is when you treat uh, the cells with this virus, the virus intend, uh, intend to be integrated into host genome and accomplish long-term gene transfer. And, but this virus is primarily used for ex vivo or cell culture infection uh, for genetic modification in cell culture or ex vivo. And then you put modified cells back to human to function as a living drug in human cell, in human tissue. And, but disadvantage of this virus is because it will require integration into host genome. So even though scientists have developed uh, all those, you know, uh, non-integrating or uh, or self-inactivating virus systems, but if it gets integrated into a oncogene or proto-oncogene, it may cause some, uh, uh, you know, mutagenesis, and and so that it's a concern. And the other virus is AAV, and AAV the major limitation is really packaging size. This is the smallest vector genome compared to uh, the other two. But the major uh, advantage for this virus uh, are um, advantages are two. First, it's least immunogenic compared to other two viruses. And two, it can form episome stability, meaning that this virus do not uh, need to integrate into host genome, but generate a circular, circular episome format to stay in the cells for long-term gene expression. Phil, did you want to add anything? Yeah, and, and you know, we kind of touched upon some of this stuff, you know, when we were talking about the packaging limitations of the viruses. And so, you know, when choosing a gene therapy platform, uh, that also plays a major part in the design of the therapy. Um, and different aspects that, you know, Guangping had already touched upon, you know, for example, uh, adenoviruses, um, those vectors are used in the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca uh, vaccines, right? And so those you can sort of consider almost like uh, gene therapy vaccines, right? And the advantage, again, is because they're highly immunogenic, they can trigger a strong immune response, and you can get sort of like a um, bystander effect for eliciting strong immune response to the, um, the, the COVID-19 uh, 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 SARS um, uh, spike protein uh, payload, right? So, um, you know, there, there's certainly advantages, again, for the lentivirus platform. So lentiviruses, are, of course, they're RNA viruses, and they need to integrate into the genome in order for them to um, uh, 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 remain stable within the transduced cells. And because of this, right, they 
they're very good at um, ex vivo strategies, right? Um, and one of the best examples of these are the recent development of these CAR T cells that are used in cancers. And so what people do is they take these uh, T cells out of the patients and then they treat them with um, um, uh, lentiviral vectors that engineer the cells so that they now have uh, properties that recognize and kill cancer cells. They re-deliver these back or reintroduce these back into patients and, uh, to do their job, right? And so all of these different platforms uh, certainly have advantages. Um, and so, um, you know, they, they need to be uh, uh, developed with, with the disease in mind. You don't cover non-viral vectors in the review. I'm wondering in general how you view them and what you see as their long-term potential. I think there's a lot of potential, right? I think one thing that's attractive about non-viral um, vectors, right? And some of these non-viral vectors are um, these uh, nanoparticles, for example. They're also considered, you know, vectors. <clears throat> the advantage is that they're not they're not uh, based on viruses. And so if you think about um, recognition by the immune, the immune system, they're probably a little bit safer and, and less toxic to the cells, right? If um, they get to a point where they can be developed in means that are as effective as viruses. So one drawback of these lipid nanoparticles or non-viral non vector platforms is that they don't have all the advantages that the viruses have. The reason why viruses are very good is because they've evolved for, for millions of years alongside humans that make them very efficient at, at transducing or infecting uh, uh, cells, right? And so I think there's still a lot to be uh, developed in, in terms of non-viral vector platforms. But, you know, just to say that, you know, one of the first... Um, um, platforms for gene therapy, they were all, they were non-viral in nature, right? So this began very, very early, you know, in the, in, in the, in the early 19, you know, seventies uh, where people were just trying to inject naked DNA into patients to see whether they would get an effect. But the problem is, of course, they just don't transduce as well as, or they don't, sorry, they don't, they don't, they can't enter into, into the cell as efficiently as viruses. You know, you have a whole mechanism there that is available for viruses to get into the cells, to get into nucleus, nucleuses of cells and, um, and uh, to do their job, right? I want to add uh, two more points here uh, for the advantages of the non-virus system. The first one is that unlike uh, viral vectors, when you give the first time, you generate a neutralizing antibody that will prevent second administration of the same virus. So that re-administration is one of the advantage, uh, advantages for non-viral vector because you do not have this kind of uh, uh, response from a host. The second advantage is in some applications such as uh, CRISPR uh, mediated genome editing, if you use a viral vector such as AAV and you would establish CRISPR expression in the target cells for a long time. So you will keep having this gene editing process uh, from happening and repairing, happening, repairing and consistently. So in long term, you may generate some off target effect. That's the, uh, but if you use the non-viral vector, that's one time deal. Once they accomplish 
the genome editing process and the viral vector cannot last that long, uh, not viral vector, I'm sorry, the non-viral vector will be gradually degraded and then the gene editing process ended there. Guangping Zhao is director of the Li Weibo Institute for Rare Disease Research and director of the Hari Gene Therapy Center and Viral Vector Corps, as well as a professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And Philip Tai, assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Both are co-authors on the recent journal article on viral vector platforms within the gene therapy space. Guangping, Phil, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.